This is the Bad Hops Podcast, a baseball podcast where we discuss everything but the box score. So if you're looking for how many putouts Mickey Morandini, the dandy little glove man, had, or Dick Dr. Strange Glove Stewart's lifetime assist total, this is not the place. But if you dream of flashing leather at the hot corner, welcome. We're your hosts. I'm Jackie McCucci. And I'm Mark Butler. And today, we're paying tribute to our favorite easy glovers. Welcome to Bad Hops. Welcome, indeed. Thanks for reading every bad pun that I could possibly have thought of before the episode started. I'm used to your puns, Mark. I'm used to your bad puns, so I'm immune. I've been told that that there is one level beyond dad jokes, and those are uncle jokes. And I think Mm -hmm. I crossed the line into that territory as well. We all need something to hold on to. Jackie, something I wanted to say to you, as the meme kids like to say these days, you know, sure, long balls are great, but have you tried stealing a home run at the wall? We're talking about fielding today, talking about nice catches. All about the art of fielding. And a shout out to my mother-in-law, Janice, for the suggestion of topic. That's right. Our first listener suggested topic. Yes, the fix was in. It's She's not just a listener, but she is a listener. She better be a listener. I don't know. She's a listener. She's a listener. We'll, we'll quiz her on uh, her favorite episodes. Thank you, Janice. We're nice catch. Like I said, long balls are great, but we don't just go to the home run derby. And for God's sake, the home run derby is kind of dull. It sounds exciting, but okay, it's just the same thing over and over. And yet people love it. But I'm with you, Mark. I would rather see some type of great fielding efforts, like stealing the home run balls. I think that'd be more fun than watching the home run derby. But I don't know. That's just us. I like watching a guy pancake on the grass in the outfield. Total extension is what they call it, but I call it pancaking. You get that glove out and you fall flat on your belly and you make the catch. It's like, dang. I know I couldn't have done that. Some more graceful than others. Yes. That epitomizes the whole of the MLB Player Association. Some are more graceful than others. We're going to talk about some athletes who have made some amazing catches in true bad hops form, though we are not just going to talk about great athletes. At least I've got some some good ones. And and you've got some folks that aren't even players, Jackie. That's yeah. uh, That's what we're going to get to a little bit later on in the episode. To start us off, Death of Flying Things. I'm pretty sure I saw them open for LCD sound system and TV on the radio at a warehouse party in Williamsburg in 2007. Death of Flying Things, that was a, they were kind of a, in with the Brooklyn crowd, no? Wait. Maybe, I mean, were they like the Flying Burrito Brothers? That's a whole different can of worms. <laughs> I said 2007, and I'm so sorry, I'm about two centuries off. Here, as as usual, I'm going to go way back into the dark ages of baseball or the brightest era, the greatest generation of baseball. The vaults. You like to go into the vaults, the Uh, catacombs. In Chicago, the Soul Station would get old school on Friday and Saturday nights, and they would say, we're getting dusty. That's what I'm going to do here. I'm I'm getting dusty. I'm going way back. I'm going back before Soul and R&B even existed. It was just player pianos and violin concertos back in in the uh, 19th century, but you know I like it back there. I know you do. When I think of great catches, I can't help but think of the greatest fielding-related nickname ever. Why put up with weak sauce names like Old Reliable or Mr. Out when you can have death the flying things? Was there a Mr. Out? No. Okay, I'm just asking because, you know, old-timing people love nicknames. I actually sort of throw that out there as a maybe to make sure that nobody ever gets called Mr. Out. Okay. Now I kind of want it to happen. Sorry. So we'll, we'll, we'll assign that name to somebody later on. Okay. As you may be guessing, a player worthy of this moniker, death to flying things, must be one heck of a fielder. And he was, or they were. Here's the problem. This kick-ass nickname has been assigned to two separate 19th century players. Jack Chapman from the Brooklyn Atlantics, and Bob Ferguson, not the Attorney General of the state of Washington. (laughs) I was like, why do I know that name? But a fielder for the New York Mutuals. That sounds like a Twitter thing. It's like, where's my New York Mutuals hat? 
either that or, you know, a financial institution. Yes, that's New York Mutual and Life, the official insurance company of Bad Hops. According to Tom Scheiber's baseball researcher blog, both players were worthy of the name. Jack Chapman was an outfielder who made some amazing grabs. Listen to this breathless account from the Brooklyn Daily Eagle of August 18th, 1868. Chapman is on the alert. He knows that if this ball is missed, this game will be a tie. Not a word is spoken as he runs swiftly over the field, gauging the ball as he goes. Every breath is suspended. At last he reaches it, and will he? Yes, he's got it. That is not a transcription of a broadcast, by the way. That is a newspaper account that apparently seemed to have been written in real time. Well, you know, they're painting a picture, people. Unless you were there, you didn't get to see the game. So, you know, the writers had they, the writers had to have some poetic license there. I tell you what, man, the, the Brooklyn Daily Eagle sports staff must have been hopped up on something because that, that's some electric prose there, but I, I like it. Bob Ferguson, who was a third baseman who also caught as a catcher, not just catching balls, and sometimes umpired? Really? <laughs> we're we're going to talk more about Bob Ferguson in a later episode when I get to do one of my spotlights on uh, old-timey players. Ask me uh, on that episode how he ended up breaking a guy's arm with a bat while he was umpiring. Uh, so mean, he once shot a man just for snoring. The subject of a, of a Johnny Cash song to come, probably. Check out this sick burn from the May 18th, 1883 Philadelphia Times. Ferguson made a great running catch, and this was the only brilliant play of the game. Like, All right, the whole game sucked, but there was that one catch. Death, of course, can assume many guises, but Tom Scheiber believes that the nickname was assigned to neither man during their careers, because there's no reference until 1910 where Chapman is granted the immortal name. But because Ferguson was cited on the same page in the book, The National Game, Shiver speculates that sloppy research resulted in giving Ferguson the nod in 1960s vintage baseball reference, the baseball encyclopedia. Weirdly, this means that the only player to actually be called death to flying things during his career, or at least verifiably so, was Seattle's own Franklin Gutierrez. Really? Yeah. In, starting in 2011, I think it was, Mariners announcer Dave Niehaus declared Franklin Gutierrez to be death to flying things. And I do remember Dave's calls back then, and he would just kind of spit it out. Death to flying things! Franklin Gutierrez! And more animated than the Brooklyn Daily Eagles sports team. Do you remember that they had a Franklin Gutierrez fly swatter giveaway? One of the most expensive giveaways ever created. I think that was perhaps seven cents per item. At least it was functional, right? You can use it. That's As opposed true. to the Dustin Ackley garden gnome. I digress, but though. <laughs> you're, not, you're not warding off pests on the regular with that? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he would scare away pests. I don't know. I never got the Dustin Ackley gnome or the fly swatter, if I'm being honest. Personally, I think Dave Niehaus should have given the the name Death to Flying Things to Seattle's own Ichiro, a player who we will almost certainly not talk about in this episode. Oh, wink, no. wink, not at wink. All. Yeah, not at all. For me, the, the one thing that's missing from all three players, Chapman, Ferguson, Gutierrez, is that none of them seem super metal. And I would like to see Death to Flying Things granted to a long-haired, inked-up total hesher with gold glove chops. Now, I don't know if that player exists, but again... There's always time for evolution in baseball. So let's get a metal dude in there to be the next, the fourth death to flying things. Hey, when we come back, we're going to talk about some of our favorite catches. I think we'll start with player catches, but then uh, we're going to get a little weird after that. We are here to talk about nice catches. We're going to start by focusing on maybe the obvious stuff, although... We'll see if it's obvious or not. We're going to see what catches the players made in game and how that impacted the game that they were playing in, or if it was just a one hell of a performance. So we're going to kind of go through some of our favorites. We'll talk about them. I think that's uh, that's how listicles work, right? We we just shout stuff out and we we power through. A little clickbait, a little audio clickbait. Speaking of clickbait. Because most of these catches have been recorded for posterity, we'll post some links and uh, you guys can check them out. 
you can watch along with us. We're not going to sync it up with the audio here or anything, but we will we'll tell you and you can go on social media and you can find out. Uh, you can pretty much find any of these catches, at least mine, on YouTube. And there are lots and lots of compilations of great catches. But, you know, pe- people definitely debate which catches are greater than others. Although I think there's probably little debate of the greatest catch of all time, but we can get into that later. That's the one thing we've sort of synced up in advance without a lot of advanced planning. It would be hard for us to not say that that catch was the best catch of all time because it's it's a doozy. It is a doozy. And Mark and I try want like to like to surprise each other. We we don't want us to we don't like to be so scripted that we know exactly what we're each doing just enough so we can have we can have genuine reactions. We're both getting each other things that we don't want for Christmas. Exactly. Oh, socks. So, thanks. <laughs> Jackie, this I'll start us off. This is not an ugly sweater. This is a okay. this is this is a a, a doozy. Getting you okay. starting us off with a doozy on the diamond in the category for best barehanded catch. It's David Wright from the New York Mets, August 9th, 2005. We are in San Diego at Petco Park, Mets versus Padres. Brian Giles is at bat. Mets third baseman David Wright does not have this one. It's one of those bloopity doop hits that always finds the field before a glove can find it. It is falling halfway between left field and third base. And Wright is technically closer to the ball, but nobody's close to it. The only problem is that David Wright has to face away from the ball to have a chance to get there. So he's got to sprint while craning his neck upward and upward, looking like he's going to like bend over and fall over backwards. And the ball is drifting away from his left side, his glove hand. By the way, left fielder Cliff Floyd is nowhere near the ball. I know you're not shocked by that. <laughs> Poor old Cliff Floyd. Poor old Mets from 2005. They did go on a run not long after that, though. Yeah, probably thanks to David Wright. At this point, I'm going to say congratulations to Brian Giles on your sloppy single. You, you did it, dude. But, oh, wait, David Wright is closing in. He's left the infield dirt and he's on the outfield grass. He does what looks like the beginnings of the Fosbury flop. Remember the Fosbury flop? The old high, no. high, the, the old high <laughs> jump not. move? The old high jumping move. I have no idea what that is. I'm sorry. Uh, you sort of you arch your body to get over the, the pole, and it gives you a little extra height on the, okay. the jump. I mean, I've seen high jumps. I just didn't. I just don't know any of the terminologies. Okay. Well, to, so... To take you out of the high jumping vernacular, Jackie, I'm disappointed in your lack of track and field ability here, but uh, let's just say you got all bent up. (laughs) Okay, okay. So he's falling to his right. His bare right hand is extended. Yeah, but there's no way he's going to get it. Good try, David. You did your best, but whatever. But wait, he's still going. His right leg crumples and he unfurls into a belly flop dive. Suddenly he rolls onto his left side and yanks his right arm skyward. He triumphantly displays the ball. Giles is out. And, you know, the Mets go on to lose anyway because the Mets. But what a what a play. Barehanded catch while falling at rapid speed onto the outfield grass. It really is amazing to watch. That's the David Wright catch from August 9th, 2005. Unbelievable timing, speed, flexibility, and a willingness to die for your team. So cheers to David Wright. There you go. So that's my best barehanded catch. Okay. I don't have a barehanded catch, but I do have them in a variety of categories. So I'll go with mine, which is what they call just giving your body up, right? Giving your body up to the game, giving up for the play. It is known as the dive, and it was performed by none other than Yankee shortstop Derek Jeter. I know how much you love Jeter, so I had to get a Jeter play in there for you. Oh, captain, my captain. Not to be confused with the flip, which is a, a different one. So the Fosbury flip? Not the Fosbury flip. <laughs> Let me set up the situation for you. It's July 1st, 2004. It's the 12th inning of a game, Yankees-Red Sox. So, of course, we're in the 12th inning, and it's tied 3-3 three <laughs> to because, three, I mean, it's a Yankee-Red Sox game. It has it's to be going on It's 3 o'clock in the forever. morning. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Game is tied 3-3, two outs, bases are loaded. And I don't know who hit, you know, I didn't look to see who actually hit the ball 
I was just kind of concentrating on actually how Jeter made this catch. And I, I've seen the catch many times, but looking at it kind of from more of a, a play-by-play perspective, which is what I did with a lot of these, these catches, I kind of wanted to see and break them down and see them from different angles and in slow motion, because you really, mo- a lot of these plays, you can't, you can appreciate them with your naked eye, but when you see them slow down, that's when you're really just like, oh my God, I can't believe this happened. So I watched this play several times in slow motion and Jeter comes all the way from the shortstop position to mid infield by third base. Don't know what A-Rod was doing at that point uh, where he was. I don't know what the, the fielding positioning was at this point, but he catches the ball like a little pop-up that could have just blooped down and would have scored at least one to two runs at that point his momentum he gets the ball he makes the catch in fair territory and then goes flies and flips into the stands like right along that that third base line and actually even though he fell flipped hit the concrete ball stayed in his glove because you know it's Derek Jeter and as a result, the game stayed tied, innings over, tied 3-3, game stays tied. The Yankees then go on to win the game in 13 innings, Mark. Not, you know, so it didn't go on too much longer than that. 13 innings, they won it 5-4. to It's part of the, the Jeter mythos. However, a little anecdote about this game. So when Jeter, so you know what happened in 2004, right? You know that the Red Sox won the World Series, broke the curse, came back beat the Yankees. Oh, it, was it kind of a historic comeback? It was kind of a historic never, comeback. Never yes. been seen before or since? Something like that. So I've been told. I, I didn't watch it. <laughs> or I've just blanked that like from my memory. I've actually been wiped. Memories been wiped for <laughs> that. There was actually a guy in the stands where Jeter made this catch. Because if you watch it, he he flipped into the stands. Like the fans kind of helped. There's like a NYPD officer over there. Security helps him up. And he's like getting up and he's like all bloodied on his chin. He still has the ball in his glove. glove but his hat is no longer on his head. So later on, it came out that, you know, the hat fell into the stands and you figure oh, a fan grabbed it. Well, a Red Sox fan actually grabbed the hat. And he said later on that he was taking credit because he stole Jeter's mojo so that the Red Sox could eventually win the World Series. So I love that little anecdote to the, the dive story. Is that why the Red Sox made that unprecedented historic comeback is that someone actually had stolen Derek Jeter's mojo? I mean, it's kind of like a Samson and you know, cut your hair kind of thing. That would be a more amazing story if they'd actually managed to cut his hair while he was uh, diving into the stands. <laughs> Cheater's hair was always pretty short, so that would have been would have been difficult. The thing about that that catch, even though the, the Yankees went on to win the game, but they didn't win the World Series that year, it just became such a part of the Jeter legend where things are just known as the flip the dive, you know, that there, there is, you know, and you just know it, we're talking about Jeter. But I had to make sure because I know what a huge Derek Jeter fan you are. I would have been remiss not to to have this. Well, thank you. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about his dalliances with Gossip Girl cast members on a later episode. Okay. All right. Well, that was a good one. You and I were doing a similar thing as we were looking at stuff. You know, this is take advantage of the technology, folks. Freeze frame, back it up, break this thing down. When I looked at the David Wright thing, I'm like, bodies don't do this. Yeah. And this all happened in just a matter of split seconds. And obviously, Derek Jeter making the play has no time to think about it. He just does it. He just zeroes in on it. I'm going to change the pace here just a tad. Okay. Because my nominee for the best non-catch of all time, I'm going to take you back to May 26, 1993. Jose Canseco, an outfielder for the Texas Rangers at the time, was playing deep in the outfield. Cleveland's Carlos Martinez hit a ball deep, deep into the outfield. Canseco runs back to the warning track to grab the ball. He's in position. He's going to make it. He's got his glove up. And the ball lands on Canseco's head. Bounces. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, Jose Canseco. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I can tell this story forever. And I think I've been telling it since 1993 because I love it. This is, of course, the our beloved car wash mogul of Las Vegas, Jose Canseco. 
So, yes, because he did not catch the ball and because the ball bounced off his head, it ended up giving Cleveland a home run in the deal. And so that's my best (laughs) non-catch. And we'll post the link to that because I I do ask if you're listening to watch this over and over and over. Just do select the the repeat loop thing on YouTube. It's worth it. I'm going to talk about Spider-Man, right? Because there are so many Spider-Man impersonations that go on with with really good catches. I love watching the guys like crawl up the wall and grab it. But let's face it, there was no one and you know that did it quite as elegantly and consistently as our pal Ichiro. Ichiro's fielding, and you may have this this catch on here, Mark. So apologies. Ichiro's fielding is a thing of beauty. Just the athleticism to catch the balls that he was able to catch, incredible. This particular one, and I, I remember, I, I actually looked for this play because I remember this. It's one of those that like stays in my in in my memory. And I mean, it's not like a cheater dive where you know, but this is the athleticism just stays in my head. So this was a game against the Los Angeles Angels, and this was um, took place in Safeco Field. It was May second, two thousand two thousand five. Yeah, 2005. <laughs> this is also on my list, and it is okay, a thing of beauty. Okay. It is a thing it of is, beauty. It is a thing of beauty, and I tell you, watch it. Like, I watched it so many times, and the slow motion, and you, you again, slow motion makes you appreciate this, this, and you can jump in at any time, Mark, if you have. So Ichiro, he robbed a home run. He robbed a lot of home runs in his time, but this was like, this was a masterpiece. You really need to watch it in slow motion to appreciate it. Ichiro somehow gets the entire half of his body above the right field wall and snags what would have been a two-run home run by uh, the Angels' uh, Garrett Anderson. Ichiro climbs up. He literally, he literally climbs up the wall, pauses, pauses, and positions his body, kind of contorts it, and catches the ball. It is... I. It is incredible. It is like one of the most incredible catches I have ever seen. Sadly, the Mariners lost that game, but who even remembers what happened in that game after that catch? I had totally forgotten that it didn't matter that the Angels were already in the lead and went on to win the game because all I cared about was this amazing thing. Don't come at me with like Michael Jordan and his hang time stuff. Okay, sure, that's a, that's amazing. But to watch Ichiro, because you say he climbs the wall, and on a technical level, I would agree because he had to get up there somehow. But there's right, a weird right. bit of like levitation and parkour and all sorts of like crazy stuff. I paused so many times and I finally was able to confirm his belt was above the top of the padding of the fence. His yep. glove was flush with the top of the railing that was keeping the the, the, the fans in right field safe and secure. His free hand balanced on top of the padding of the fence for a couple extra split seconds of hang time. So, yeah, he was propping himself up, but he was also just like a hovercraft. He was just up there. One other thing that I noticed when I was watching this, he took his eyes off the ball. And right, that's usually the kiss of death. All, All of these other catches, like I just told you how David Wright looked like he probably would have to go to the chiropractor after bending his neck so far backwards so that he could keep an eye on the ball. Ichiro didn't need to worry about that. He figured out the angles. He'd figured out the velocity. He figured out the environmental conditions and just focused on mounting that wall. He knew where the ball was going to be. And he turned around, saw it, grabbed it, snatched it. Sorry, Garrett Anderson. But yeah, just amazing. Just beyond superhuman. Almost just not of this world. That's my best catch in the Ichiro division. And I, I know that's that, that's up there high on your list as well. For sure. I've got another catch for you, or actually a series of catches. Uh, okay. And in fact, the people making these catches might have made more catches than any MLB player did this season. That's the official scorers. Mm. You know, sometimes the folks in charge get things wrong. Maybe that sacrifice bunt wasn't actually a sacrifice. Maybe that error impacted multiple base runners instead of one, which then could materially alter a pitcher's earned run average if the runs were, in fact, unearned. 
According to MLB.com, there are three ways for the official stats of any game to be adjusted after the fact. Not the outcome of the game, mind you. That's final. But the specific details of individual players' performance can be changed retroactively. Changes can be made by the official scorer, which is cool because that person who's on site, they might have been remote back in the COVID days, but generally it's somebody serving as in the official capacity as of official scorer in the press box. They are able to correct themselves if they go back and watch the tape of the game and say, yeah, you know what, that was actually a sacrifice fly. So we'll, we'll credit, we'll con- change how the RBIs are reconfigured or, or what have you. But the Elias Sports Bureau can also submit a change or a player or a club can initiate a review with Major League Baseball to also get those changed. So admitting that you were wrong and doing right by the players, I call that a great catch. I think so too. I like that you can go back and get score things correctly. I do sometimes wonder, you know, they also, they call it home cooking when someone gets a, an error as opposed to a base hit and vice versa, depending on who, on who's doing the scoring, but yeah, it, getting it right is, is, uh, is also a good catch. You have some more actual ball and glove catches to talk about. I do. I do. And Mark, don't you love a good frozen treat in the in the summer months or during baseball season, like a good snow cone? Who doesn't love a good snow cone? I love a good peanut buster parfait myself, but uh, let's, yeah, <laughs> let's, let's go with a snow cone. Let's go with a snow cone. And on my list, I have Andy Chavez's snow cone catch. Uh, Andy Chavez of the New York Mets happened in 2006 NLCS game seven against the St. Louis Cardinals. And I do remember this game. I do remember watching this game and I remember seeing this catch and being like, wow, that is quite a catch. Let's hope it changed, you know, for my Mets fans, friends. I was like, oh, maybe it'll change. You know, this is the thing that'll change the momentum. Unfortunately, the Mets did not win this game, but this catch is what I remember most. Although I'm sure a lot of them remember Carlos Beltran standing there looking at strike three down the middle of the plate. So Anyway, let's talk about, sorry, I'm giving people PTSD now. Anyway, let's talk about uh, Andy Chavez's uh, catcher. It was the top of the sixth. There's one on, one out, and the score is tied 1-1 at that point. And I believe Ali Perez was pitching, and he was always an adventure on the mound. Chavez made a spectacular leaping catch over the center field wall at what was then Shea Stadium or was Shea Stadium before they they had City Field. And he robbed a home run from third baseman Scott Rowland. Going to describe this catch, though. He had his arm over the wall. Like it literally, his momentum brings his arm, like he jumps, his momentum brings his arm up over the wall. And you can see the ball is in his glove, but it's like, is he going to be able to hold on to this this ball? Because it is literally like, you've seen it when they're going so fast, their, their arm kind of snaps back. He right. comes down, the ball just like stayed on the top, true snow cone catch, it was right on the top. But how he held on to it, how that thing didn't go over the wall, was amazing. It was a true snow cone catch, and and he just held on to that thing. But unfortunately, the Mets eventually lost the game and the series three to one on a Yadier Molina. Remember him? Oh, that's right. He's still playing. Two run home run. Grandpa Yadi. <laughs> Grandpa Yadi. The other thing about this catch, by the way, that I that I should mention: not only did he make the catch, he turned it into a double play. Because the runner at first thought the ball was going over the wall because it did. So he was caught in the middle after Andy Chavez caught the ball. He was like caught in the middle and Chavez catches the ball, throws it to first base, double play, inning over. So it wasn't just a great catch. It was a great play to end the inning. I'm realizing that almost everything we've highlighted so far has resulted in that player's team losing. The play did not result in the team losing, but one great play alone does not make positive outcome. I guess no, but it keeps uh, it will keep your your team in the game. In the, in the the jitter dive catch, they did win the game. 
But okay. not, there are a few of my others, actually. A couple of my others that it helped uh, get to the win. So, but yeah, you're right. It, it doesn't always doesn't always result that way. Big play in a big moment. It kept the Mets in that series. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't any Chavez's fault that they uh, didn't score any more runs after that. I don't know. I don't know what his uh what his line what his batting line was at that point. As a fan, I mean, from a psychological perspective, when you see a player lay out like that and give it his all you're going to hang in there a little bit longer too, right? Your team might be losing, all hope might be lost, but then all of a sudden it's like, wait, what What just happened? Show that again. And you're back in. It gives the team, yeah, and it gives the team a boost. It gives the fans a boost. The fans get all excited and riled up. The team is all excited and riled up. You know, it, it does, I think it makes a big difference in helping you to get to win the game. My final catch that I want to spotlight is actually... Not a nice catch, but a nice catcher. I just want to shout out Pudge Rodriguez, who has caught more games in Major League Baseball history than anybody else. Is he a spectacular fielder? No, he's a squat little guy that like is an excellent game caller that stands behind home plate. I'm sure he caught some pop-ups behind home plate. You probably never saw Pudge Rodriguez at full extension, is is where I'm going with this. You probably don't want to probably don't want to see that. Don't want to see yeah. Maybe you do. I don't know. But if you don't have a good catcher. It doesn't really matter what's going on in the outfield because the uh, the game's going to fall apart before the ball ever gets out of the infield. So anyway, Pudge Rodriguez, nice catch. Okay, I've got two more okay. um, on the list here. So I will go through my, my two catches here. So the next one I have on my list, he's another Seattle Mariner, and he's another Seattle Mariner who is known for making really amazing plays in the outfield. And that's good old Junior Griffey. I've entitled this Griffey's Best Play Ever because apparently Griffey even thought it was his best play ever because he wrote a piece for the Players' Tribune about it. He entitled The Best Play I Ever Made. So there you go. Even Griffey thought this was the best play he ever made. The Best Play I Ever Made by Ken Griffey Jr., age six. That's right. (laughs) It was a nice day at the ballpark. I went there and then I caught a ball. The end. I bet there's more to it than that. And I bet he's more than six. He is more than six. This actually happened way back on August 9th, 1998, which was a great year for the Mariners, except I don't think they won the World Series that year, right? They had a lot of games that they won, but they kind of they kind of lost to another team in the ALCS, if I yeah, recall. I was going to say, I'm pretty sure they didn't win the World Series. You can't win what you've never been to. That is so <laughs> true. Nonetheless, this is a spectacular play by Griffey. This did not take place at Safeco Field. This took place at what was then known as Tiger Stadium. Luis Gonzalez hits what would have been a home run. Junior tracks the ball, times his leap perfectly. And that's the thing. It's his, it's to me, it was the leap because he tracks it, stops, leaps, and then snatches the ball from over the fence. And it was just, it was that leap. And when these guys leap, there's just something amazing about like being able to especially because like you're not a lot of times they don't have a ton of momentum. Sometimes they have the momentum because they're running, but a lot of times they just like, they just do the jump and that's what he did. He jumped, grabbed it, stole a home run and the Mariners ended up winning that game six to three. So that actually was for a winning effort. At last. At last. So there you go. Junior and Jeter. So if your name has a J in it, then you're probably, yeah, you're you're good. Sorry, David Wright. David Wright. David Wright was a was a was a great fielder. Poor guy's career was cut short because of his back issues. My number one is a catch that saved a perfect game, and you might remember this one, Mark, um, because we always, you know, people always alert us. You know, they like to alert us when there are perfect games. Although this was this happened July twenty third, two thousand nine, Chicago White Sox center fielder. Dwayne Wise. Wise was brought in as a defensive replacement in center field in the ninth inning with Mark Burley's perfect game on the line, right? So you got to bring in the defensive guys. So it's five, nothing White Sox at this point, but that's not the issue. The issue is Mark Burley is he's pitching a gem. The first batter up is Gabe Kapler and the team was the Tampa Bay Rays. So it was Tampa Bay Rays. I didn't even realize that Gabe Kapler 
played for the Rays, but I feel like the Rays had a bunch of people going in and out back in the day. Kapler hits what is looking like a ball that is going out of the ballpark. And in fact, it was going to go out of the ballpark. But Wise ran back, jumped, and extended his glove over the wall, over the wall, made like a bobbling catch. You can see the, the, the ball kind of moving in his glove, but he's able to snag it and saves the perfect game. That's the guy you want in the outfield, right? When you're trying to pitch a perfect game. I mean, he just like, he, he, he saved Burley's Burley's ass in a number of ways that yeah, night. So for sure. that's winning effort, perfect game. It is interesting. I think we could probably cite any number of things where even scrubby guys step up when there's a no hitter on the line. All of a sudden a ball that it looks like it's, what did I call it earlier? A bloopity doop. That's, mm-hmm. that's just going to drop into the the shallow outfield. A guy will all of a sudden put some extra hustle in there. He'll find a way. He'll find a route. He'll get the glove on the ball because it's a big deal. And, and yeah, is the game on the line? Possibly. Is a shot at perfection, a date with destiny on the line? That's probably the bigger factor. It is interesting to see that adrenaline turn on. And not just for the pitcher, but for the whole team. And every guy out there wants it to happen. And so, yeah, it doesn't surprise me that Dwayne Wise, who did, you said he came in, in the for the final inning, he came in as a, he came in as a defensive replacement in the in the ninth. Um, so he was brought in specifically for his glove. And I hope that Burley bought him a really nice present after that because he would not have had a perfect game without him. Yeah, I think that's a steak stuffed with steak, uh, yeah, in, so. in, in my opinion. Imagine Dwayne Wise's perspective. He's been sitting on the bench watching nothing happen on the scoreboard, <laughs> watching watching the tally not tally. He is hyper aware of what's going on, whereas the person that was playing center field for the first eight innings probably knows what's going on, but he hasn't had time to think about it. A guy coming in as a defensive replacement, yeah, no pressure, dude. That's a tough situation to come into. Maybe not as tough as Mark Burley's situation of being isolated <laughs> from his teammates. <laughs> and one, right. And wondering what he's what he needs to do, if he can do it, if he's got it in him. This stuff messes with your head. Baseball's a harsh game, but when everything clicks, it's beautiful. She's an evil mistress, that baseball. But yeah, no, you, it's a good point that you bring because you're, you know, you're there for one reason. You're there because of your glove. You're there because, you know, you want to make sure that everything that should be caught will be caught. But this was something that maybe, I don't know who their regular center fielder was, but would he have caught it? Who knows? Well, speaking of beautiful, we do have a thing of beauty, a thing of history we want to talk about. Let's dwell on this. Let's take a little break and we'll come back and we'll talk about the greatest catch of all time. All right, we're back. And we're going to talk about what, if you go down the rabbit hole of greatest catches, this is going to be on most people's top list, top, you know, the top of their list. This is historically considered one of the greatest catches of all time. Mark, take it away. Let us know who, who had this great catch. There's no going down a rabbit hole. If you type in MLB greatest catch of all time, the whole first page of Google results is going to be the catch, capital T, capital C. As a contrarian, I tried very hard to find better catches. And I personally, because I saw that Ichiro one, I do love it more, but I got to give it to Willie Mays, the say, hey, kid. Well, well, also and, the context of what when this catch takes place, too. So, I mean, the Ichiro catch is amazing, but this was also yeah. taking place in the middle of a World Series. But Thank you for letting me go back to my comfort zone times before I was born. There you go. As you mentioned, Jackie, it is game one of the 1954 World Series, and it is being played in New York. It is the New York Giants versus the Cleveland Indians at the Polo Grounds. Now, the Polo Grounds is a character in this story as much as any of the individuals that we're going to talk about. I'm just going to throw out one stat about the Polo Grounds, and we'll come back to this. 483 feet to dead center at the Polo Grounds. The deepest center field, I think, at any Major League ballpark? I think so, yeah. 
So good for you, Polo Grounds. You were built for some other purpose, possibly Polo. Let's take you into the game. For Cleveland, Vic Wirtz is at bat. And I did some research on Vic Wirtz, and I did not know this guy's name at all, but I sort of regret that I didn't because he's a dude. It's a tie game in the eighth inning. And remember, this is game one of the World Series. Vic Wirtz already has hit a triple, a double, and two singles, and driven in both of Cleveland's runs. So he's going to go for the cycle. Exactly. This guy is obviously a threat just because you don't know who Vic Wirtz is. Just because I don't know who Vic Wirtz is. I mean, I had never heard of him. I know other than in context context of this catch. (laughs) Yeah. But now I'm scared of this guy reading how we got to the eighth inning of this tie game. And there's two base runners on. So Wirtz could blow this game open. Center fielder Willie Mays was playing shallow, partly because of the base runners but also because when the center field is 483 feet, there's no proper positioning in the ginormous polo grounds. There's no right place to be. Playing shallow makes more sense, and especially when you've got to throw some runners out. Vic Wirtz rips the ball deep into center. Jackie, your prediction of going for the cycle was correct. He is going for it. He has the chance to take this game, game one of the World Series for Cleveland. Now, it's a home run in any modern park. Just as a where the Giants play now, it's a very generous center field at Oracle Park, but it's only 430 feet. That's 50 feet different between the Polo Grounds and Oracle Park. If Wirtz hits this home run, Cleveland would be up 5-2 to two and would likely take game one. You want to tell me a little bit about what, what happens next? Oh, Willie Mays makes the catch. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Oh, that was bad hops. Join us at the next episode. For stating the obvious. Yes, Willie Mays does make the catch. This segment is called The Catch. So, yes. <laughs> Did you want me to give a detailed description? Or I thought. I, no, I got, I got more. Go ahead. It's, 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 it's your baby, but you know, you were setting it up for me. So I was just, I'm sorry. Like a spoiler alert, he, made, he makes the catch. This is the give and take of modern podcasting. That's okay. right. Mays tore out as soon as the ball was hit. You you know, you can tell. You hear the crack of the bat. He knew. He runs from shallow center towards the wall. This dude was fast. Willie Mays was a speedster, a stolen base guy, a power hitter, great fielder. One of the greatest players of all time. For sure. But, But he had miles to go to get to the wall. So he was closing in on the ball. Perfect tracking, elite speed. And guess what? You know what happens now? It's time for a lecture. Yay! Um, lecture. Can I, can I have a hall pass? I need to use the ladies' room. <laughs> no. we've, right, locked, we've locked the door but behind you fine. and everyone who's listening. Catching the ball is a critical ability, obviously. We're dedicating a whole episode to catching the ball. You've got to be an eagle eye with a hyper-analytical brain. Is it windy? Is the spin rate of the ball a factor? How close is the wall? But what you do with the ball in that situation in a situation like this, is even more important than just making the catch. There's two base runners. It's a tie game. It's the eighth inning. You can't just catch the ball and say, well, hey, I did everything I could. So, yeah, Willie Mays, as you spoiled it for everyone, Jackie, Willie Mays makes the catch. But what happens next is, to me, what makes this the most amazing play. So we'll call it the catch, but it's it's the everything bagel, essentially. So yeah, best Willie Mays, of all the bagels. Best of all the bagels. It has to be. It like mathematically has to be the best of all the bagels. There's some haters out there, and I don't look at the comments on the YouTube videos of, of the catch. People are saying nasty things about that, about Willie Mays making a spectacular catch to it. They probably don't even know how deep the polo grounds outfield was. That's one of the things they probably have no idea. And it's in black and white. So people can't wrap their heads around something that's not in color. Well, it's not real, right? It's yeah, the, it just the, didn't actually yeah. take place. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So haters are posting stuff like, oh, wow, a running catch. Like lots of people make running catches. I tell you what, Willie Mays nabbed that ball near the wall, pivoted on a dime and threw a bullet back into the infield to check the runners. A guy on second base tagging up on a ball hit to 483 feet. Let's just say Wurtz didn't make it all the way. 482 feet. 
a runner can tag up at second and make it home in most circumstances. Mays got that ball in perfectly, was able to hold up the runners and keep the tie. That's two Herculean feats in 10 seconds or so. So he made the run, caught the ball, and then he got the ball exactly where it needed to be, preserved the tie. Because even if one base runner had scored in the eighth inning, three to two, that's a, all of a sudden, that's, that's a tough circumstance. You know, the Giants would now have to come from behind. That runner is on third. And normally you would think how far that, that ball was hit, that the runner on third would be able to score as a sacrifice, correct? Yeah. Right? So, so I mean, that's, a, that's like a quarterback throw. Absolutely. With total precision. It is amazing what he did. So that's what makes the catch a big deal to me. Willie Mays did everything he needed to do. And that was enough to get the Giants in a position to win in 10 innings, which set the stage for New York to win the 1954 World Series. How's that for a catch? What do you think about when you go back and watch those videos of the catch from 1954? I still think it's an incredible catch. I mean, I don't know if people just understand, like I said, the dimensions of the polo ground. I think people just, people, haters going to hate, right? People just like to say negative things. I still think it's an amazing catch. I still think, you know, we can debate it, but I still think it it is the top catch of all time. Come at me with something that's better than that. I just think that the problem is, again, black and white, old-timey. People have no idea how big the polo grounds are. Also, you know, the other thing is, like, the, the guys, their, their equipment back then wasn't, like, they didn't have, like, enormous gloves that a lot of the players have today. And that's nothing. I mean, game changes, we get technology gets better, but their gloves weren't like the size of, you know, their my head at this point, although probably more like your head, I think, because you're <laughs> I have a tiny head. So and, and Mark has a big head. So I think that's that's where the the analogy comes from. But that's the other thing too, right? It's like even if you think of the equipment that they were using as opposed to what they're using today. Um, it was an incredible catch. It's an incredible throw. Willie Mays, one of the best players of all time. Such a beautiful human being, too. Just a ball of positivity. And he really could do it all. I love the fact that Willie Mays is still sitting up there on the home run list of all time. His bat wasn't a factor in this game. But if Willie Mays wasn't there, the Giants probably wouldn't have won the World Series. Just going to okay. say that. You could do it all. So maybe maybe the problem is it's not just a nice catch. It's the ultimate catch. But like we were saying, that's you're only halfway through the process here. You also have a great throw. So maybe we ought to just rebrand it and not call it the catch. We should just call it the say hey in Willie Mays' honor. Because it is literally short of him actually then figuring out how to hit a home run for himself on this play. You literally got to see every great quality about Willie Mays. Oh, he had a big smile on his face too. Cause you know, that is the end of our great catches for players, but you don't have to be a player to make a great catch. So we're going to talk about some folks that have made some great and maybe not so great catches. So we'll be back and we'll get a little weird. Have you ever caught a foul ball at a baseball game? I sat next to somebody who caught a ball. How does that, so does that, that count? Maybe. I mean, I've sat next to someone too. I mean, I, Rachel one time. She didn't yeah, catch the foul ball. It bounced to her, right? Were you, if, if, if I recall correctly. Ooh. Okay. I'm going to let you talk about that with her. She went home with a foul ball. And I thought of foul ball, but I don't think she got like, I I think like it wasn't like a clean and a lot of these catches, the types of catches I'm going to talk about a lot of times there when balls go into the stands, it's not always a clean catch because you'll see some, some people will catch it, but sometimes a lot of times it'll bounce and then someone will catch it after it's bounced. But I, I, I think one of the things I love about foul balls in the stands is just watching grown men, like almost kill themselves to get a baseball diving over seeds. It's like, it's just, I mean, it's just a baseball. Yeah. I get a little bit more of the home run balls, home run balls, or it can have some significance, especially if people are chasing big numbers. Like I can see maybe, maybe wanting to, you know, 
make the extra effort to catch one of those, but a foul ball is a foul ball. Who cares? I'm actually going to talk about the types of catches that fans make in the stands because we've all seen them every year. There's some type of compilation. They'll show it up on the Jumbotron. You'll see it various sports networks where they'll show like a compilation of fan catches. I've broken it down into categories because there are, you know, the categories, you've seen them. They basically break out into these particular divisions. So I'm just going to go in that direction as opposed to like this guy, that guy. I'm sure, like, I actually went down a rabbit hole looking at various fan catches, and there are a lot of, they, they have similar themes. So the number one theme is ye old beer catch, right? Where guys standing there, girls standing there, it doesn't matter. I've seen both men and women do this. Foul ball goes, they catch it in their beer, right? They catch it in their beer. And of course, what do they do, Mark? The thing that grosses you out the most, they chug the beer with the ball in it. And they are encouraged to do that. So now you got a filthy old baseball that someone's like licked their fingers and tar and whatever is on it. And you're chugging your beer. I guess the alcohol kills whatever germs are on it. We call it a rawhide-infused IPA, Jackie, and okay. it is a okay. it is a delicacy in certain cultures. It's a rarity for sure. So yeah, mm-hmm. drink it if you got it. Drink it if you got it. Also, subdivisions in this category include the person in the stands who catches the ball and doesn't spill their beer. So they catch the ball in one hand, they still got the beer in the other hand. To me, that's even more amazing than catching it in your beer and drinking it because like you didn't spill your beer. Like, how'd you do that? That's amazing. Catch the ball in one hand, drink the beer with the other hand, and then get the ball back into the field to check the runners so that the base runners <laughs> don't score. Now that's a, that's a play. <laughs> Other objects that people use to catch the ball. I have seen a bucket of popcorn. That makes sense. I'm hoping you're not eating your popcorn. Oh, those are those uh, are good because yeah. you get you get special hey. effects with those. Like if like Rip Taylor and his confetti bomb. There's popcorn everywhere. All of a sudden, there's pop- everybody. You're getting popcorn and you're getting popcorn. Oh, um, here you go. <laughs> The other category is a hat. So I saw a bunch of videos of people catching foul balls with their hats. And I was like, it is hard, right? Because the momentum, those balls are hit pretty hard. You're like fouling off like a 90 plus mile an hour fastball into the stands and some guy or girl puts their hat out. You get a hole because the momentum is going to like take your hat and like rip it out of your hands. But the fact that you can hold on to it is is pretty incredible. The best catch I saw with the hat was not a baseball hat. This was a Rays fan who the ball was coming. It was uh, along the the um, third base line. He was like, you know, a little bit close. He had on, it wasn't quite a cowboy hat. It might've been a straw hat because, you know, it's Florida. Ball is coming towards him. He impromptu takes the hat off and catches the foul ball in his hat. So props to that dude. That was, you know, quick thinking. I would like to see a sombrero be employed for that. And then I was realizing that there's a something I don't think I've ever seen. Prove me wrong, kids. Has anybody ever caught a ball with a, wearing a foam finger? Ooh, I didn't see that. <laughs> I think that would be really I hard. Not, it would be really hard, but you never know. Google yeah. it. It might, it might be there. I, okay. I wouldn't, yeah, let us know. If, if we find something, we'll post it. The other category, and this is another one you'll inevitably see a bunch of catches like this throughout throughout a season, holding a baby, yep. making a catch while holding a baby. Mom and dad sitting there catching a foul ball. Sometimes they're, they're, sometimes they're going for the foul ball. Sometimes they're just sitting there. There was one guy who was actually feeding his baby a bottle and he was sitting and the ball bounced and he just put his hand up and caught it while still feeding the baby, giving the baby its bottle. So that was pretty incredible. Did the ball bounce into the milk and then the kid drank the milk? <laughs> and then the and kid then, just chugged the and milk. Th- and then the kid picked off a runner at third. Oh yeah, there, there you go. It's spectacular. It's at my top. I did see one video where the guy was holding like a toddler. This took place at City Field, Mets fan. He like leans over like he's leaning over to catch this home run ball that's kind of towards the side while holding the toddler and i will say if i was that baby's mother i would have been like what the are you doing like you're putting like he could have like he could have like the two of them could have gone 
tumbling over. It wasn't like the right. ball was coming towards him. He was trying to make the catch. So what? I, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. She's like, you were on Sports Center. Exactly. I saw you on Sports Center. <laughs> Here's another one where if I was the mom of this kid, I would have gotten upset. This happened at a Diamondbacks game. This wasn't a foul ball, but it was like, you know, the end of the inning and the player draw, you know, will throw the ball inevitably into the stands along the side. This guy, he's holding a baby and a beer. The ball is thrown by the player into the stands. He temporarily like kind of lets go of the baby. It's like a toddler in the crook of his arm. So he can like maneuver to catch, like hold the beer and the baby and catch the ball. And then like gets the baby, like was able to maneuver the baby back under his arm to, to so that the baby doesn't fall. I was like, really? <laughs> really? <laughs> I mean, to be fair... Those beers were probably $15, and the baby um, you technically make for free. Fair. That is fair. I mean, I saw you on Sports Center. I saw it again. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it was literally like a split second where it kind of like doesn't have complete hold of the baby, but you're just like, ooh, that could have gone very, very, very wrong. Now, see, when when Dwayne Wise comes in as a defensive replacement, he can do like a superhuman feat, and it's like, oh, he's just, you know, part of the job, ma'am. But like a guy, you know, trying to keep the, the baby and the beer safe. And, you know, he, he figured out how to do it. Defensive replacement might be in order to that when he gets escorted from the stands for injuring a baby and for filling a beer. Baby. However, my favorite, and you may remember this, Mark, this happened last year. This is my favorite fan catch of all time. We'll see if anyone can ever top this. A White Sox fan use her prosthetic leg to catch a home run ball last year. I don't know if you remember that. Her name is Shannon Friendreese, and she posted the catch on her TikTok account with the caption, five beers in and taking my leg off to catch a ball seems like a great idea. It worked. She caught it. And I have never seen anyone catch a ball with their prosthetic leg. I've never even seen someone who attempt to catch a ball with their prosthetic leg because I feel like that that's generally the category that would end up in as attempts rather than successful completions. But yeah, good, Got good, it. good for her. I, I mean, if you can top that, let me know if you can top that. That's uh, in the spirit of Bill Veck, the Chicago White Sox owner, who's now deceased. It also had a prosthetic leg. I guess that's a it's a White Sox thing. You you wouldn't understand. Those are awesome. Yes, the expensive concession stand catch is definitely a category. The baby catch is a surprisingly, I I guess you don't really see most fan catches on a broadcast. So it has to be fairly remarkable for someone to bother going to camera five and pulling some footage. It's like, did you see that? The guy with the baby just did the thing. But yeah, prosthetic leg, that's Hall of Fame because I think that may be the only one ever. Only one I know of. We've talked about heroic catches in this episode, but of course there are the ones that pop out of the glove, not just the ones that bounce off Jose Canseco's head. Oh, Jose Canseco. But you know those those heartbreakers. It just you think they've got it, and they don't. Well, let's go back to San Francisco, 2004. Barry Bonds' trainer, Greg Anderson, was recorded stating that Bonds had been using performance-enhancing steroids. Anderson, though, (laughs) yes, imagine that. Barry Bonds, who knew? Anderson refused to testify against Bonds in a perjury trial related to this investigation. But enough evidence surfaced for Bonds to be convicted on one count of perjury in 2011 by a grand jury. That almost great catch was bobbled when the perjury charge was overturned by the Court of Appeals. Heartbreaker, kind of uh, some ninth inning heroics, undone by the Court of Appeals. But I'd like to end on a positive note, a career career capstone catch. We think of Joe DiMaggio primarily for his hitting. That 56-game hitting streak in 1941, still unbeaten, probably that, that might be an eternal record, right? That's 11 more hits or 11, 11 more games in which he safely hit than we Willie Keeler's original streak. And it's 12 more than Pete Rose got in 1978. Pete Rose is the closest that's ever come to Joe DiMaggio. Still felt 12 games short. But at the end of his career, 
Joe DiMaggio made a catch that people are still talking about. You remember how Ted Williams hit a home run in his final at bat? And I was like, whoa, can you believe that? This might be a bigger deal. And Joe did it after he retired. 1952, he asked Marilyn Monroe out on a date. Two years later, they married in San Francisco. Yes, the marriage only lasted nine months, just a tad longer than Joe's streak. But I still say great catch to Joe DiMaggio. You said I could take liberties with the topic. I did. You did. And you did. You did. Goodbye, Norma Jean. And goodbye, England's Rose. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) The fans are heading home. The grounds crew is on the field. And we will see you next time at the ballpark. That's our pal Ron Lewis on the stadium organ. I'm Mark Butler. And I'm Jackie McCucci. And this was Bad Hops. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of this podcast without the express written consent of Bad Hops is prohibited. Unless you like us, review us, or subscribe to Bad Hops. Find us at, at Bad Hops Podcast on Instagram and everywhere else. I got it. I got it. <laughs> Running catch. So what?